All right. Well, today we are in the letters of Peter. We're still in the general epistles. What was a general epistle? Not specific letter, so the audience is not laid out. Uh, who could tell me what the epistles were? Which ones were labeled as general epistles? That was in last week's notes. Some of you paid attention. I saw some of you clipping stuff. Jane, we, 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 talk, we started talking about them last week. What did we talk about last week? What are the general epistles? There's actually eight of them. Well, that's, you got James and Hebrews, right? We talked about those last week. And then you got Peter, which is first to second Peter. And John is first, second, and third John. And then Jude. So you got them all. <laughs> and these are just letters that we don't have a, a direct, um, you know, like an audience that's really specific. As in some of the other ones, like, um, you know, Timothy was to Timothy. Um. These letters were in Peter today. Now, the Peters are written by Peter. It starts out, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. One of the best known figures in the New Testament. The apostle, disciple. Tradition puts him in the uh, Roman Empire by the time he dies. Though... Um, we, in the Bible, it doesn't actually talk about what happens to Peter towards the end there. Because it switches its focus over to Paul. We just know that Peter is in Jerusalem and he continues his mission's work. But tradition holds him being in Rome. Establishing the church in Rome that, Peter write, that Paul writes to. That's tradition anyways. Um... Tradition holds that he dies about the same time that Paul does. So. All right. First Peter. Two gods elect strangers in the world scatter throughout a bunch of different places who have been. Uh, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Grace and peace be to you. He's probably at this time ta talking about, we like to make everything individualistic, right? It's about me. When he says the elect, he's probably not even thinking about individual he's talking about those who have accepted Christ but the groups the Jews and maybe even the Gentiles who were elect in accepting so he's talking about these people groups not necessarily an individual um, ah, there it is Outline. Uh, 
suffering as Christians is his first major section. Pro, praises for a for a for a praise to a God for a living hope. Um, first two, well, chapter one through verse two ten is all about living the life in the times that they are given. Now, Peter lives during a time of immense suffering and persecution for Christians. Suffering is seen as part of the calling because we're not of this world. So he'll talk about suffering. Um, Praise be to God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. In great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the end to end. Inheritance that can never perish, spoil or frayed, kept in heavens for you who are through faith are shielded by uh, God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be received in the last time. So as they're going through persecution, he views the end as coming. Now there is people that argue, is he talking about the end of time? Or is he talking about the end of suffering? His, the persecution period? Or is he talking about just the end of their lives? The most traditional reading is he's talking about the return of Jesus Christ. Remember, he was there when he saw Jesus come up and the angel said, why are you sad? He's going to come back just the same way he left. So that's the most traditional reading. But I want you to be aware there are people that argue this point. So, but he says we have been called to suffer we're, 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 we're un, uh, until the coming of the salvation. Salvation is actually another major theme in 1 Peter. Um, keep your eyes um, on the life that comes after or the future hope. These are words of encouragement. Um, during a time of, of suffering. So we rejoice in our suffering. I think too often we forget what they were going through when they wrote this. You know, we, we, we take, oh, I'm suffering. My back kills me every morning. Well, it's not exactly what he's talking about there. He's talking about the persecution that's coming, um, and we got. And as I read these passages on persecution, I don't try to make you know. Oh well, I'm suffering in persecution here in the United States. If you try to do that, you're just going to be. You're a, you, that's not right. You're not persecuted here in the United States. Now, someone may not like you. And there may be one person that does something because you're a Christian, but you are not persecuted here in the United States. But what we can do is remember those all around the world that are not as religiously able as we are. And we are in hostile lands and aren't being persecuted. There is persecution around the world. And... Um, and so we don't try to make it about us. We try to we we take uh, we 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 uh, we 
unify ourselves with our brothers and sisters that are going through this. We take the role, we can take the role of Paul's friends who were sending them help and sending them care and sending them prayers and sending them love as Paul is about to be killed or as Peter is about to be killed. We can, t- we can take that role on because that's where we're at. We're not the main character in that story of persecution right now. We're not that main character. We're the supporting characters. And say, we'll support you. And so we pray for those who are being persecuted. You know, one of the biggest things, if you go to someone who's being persecuted, and <clears throat> I like to go to Voice of the Martyrs, but they, they ask it, what do you need? And the first thing they ask for is prayer. They want prayer for themselves. They want prayer that they can forgive even those who are persecuting them. And so it's important that, you know, we, we pray for them. We, 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 we uh, support them where we can, you know, that's financially where we can and uh, sending Bibles where we can. And, you know, because these people, are per- even though they're persecuted, they're still witnessing out there and sending the materials and, and there's all kinds of ways we can support. We can play that supporting role, just like Paul was supported from his, the churches that supported him. We've got to remember, Paul was very important, but so were the people that were taking care of Paul while he was in prison. Um, anyway. I don't want to read all of this, but uh, prepare yourselves, your minds for actions, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus is revealed. That's verse 13 in chapter 1. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who has called you to be holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. There's a statement that we can take to heart, right? Be holy because He is holy. I'm going to go down to chapter, uh, verse 22 of chapter 1. Now you have been purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have, have sincere love for your brothers, love for one another deeply from the, the hearts. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field, and the grass withers, and the Flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice, of all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted the Lord's, the Lord is good. I like that. Because you have the salvation, because you have tasted his salvation, right? Major theme. 
Therefore, rid yourself of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind, so that like new you may crave pure holiness. We may be pure. We have to rid these things so that we can be pure. What a beautiful word, don't you think? I love that. Um, all right. So 2, 11 through 3, 13 is you're at home but not in this world. So, so you are called to be uh, not of this world at home. So it talks about submitting to your, your rulers and to the master, if you may be a, a servant, a slave, um, wives and husbands, uh, same teachings that Paul, uh, Paul had. So we're not going to repeat them. Um, then he goes on back to the idea of suffering in 3, 13 through 4, 19. I love that. Suffering, be pure, right? At home, you've got to be different because even though it's going to cause you more suffering because they're going to see that you're different at home. And then he goes back to the idea of suffering. And then he has one of those great verses in the scriptures, right? But in your heart, set apart Christ as your Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who has given you the reason for the hope you have. But do so with gentleness and respect, keeping care conscious that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Notice what it's not saying. It says, you know, always be prepared to give for the hope that you have because they're going to ask you about it. But it doesn't say know all the answers in the science book. It doesn't say they're going to ask you because they just don't, you know, this isn't saying, oh, well, you need to go argue with every atheist. You know what Jesus says about, he says, go for after the right fruit. If you're talking to, I mean, there, have been a, there are some people that are called to teach apologetics and to, to be apologetics. Most of us are not. Most of us don't need to be into that. Now, if you've got a child under you or someone who's under you that's asking questions, you better be studying so you can give accurate answers. Because that's where a lot of the young people go. They, they say, well, you can't answer this question. Why should I listen to you? So you better be doing the work. But does that mean you need to? But that's because you're raising someone under you, discipling someone under you. And you guys all should be discipling someone. But what it doesn't say is, well, you need to go pick a fight with a local atheist. You know what? They're going to be atheists, and they're going to always come up with something to argue against you with, and they're going to have, their reason is going to beat your faith in their mind. So, you know, why fight it? Let them have the, you know. Now, if God brings them back to a point, you know, back to where they're asking questions in sincerity, that's wonderful. But I, you know, I, I, I see, I get on TikTok or, or social media, and I see these people arguing with these atheists, and they're like, why I left, the, or these atheists, why I left the church, you know. They weren't Christians in the beginning with. They didn't know the scriptures. They may know it better, you know, like they may read the Bible, 
but they didn't know the Bible. They may have read, they may know the Bible for what it says, but they don't know the Lord of the Bible. Can I share something? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And that's what this says. It says, do this with gentleness. It says, be, give reason, because they're going to ask, give a reason, but do it with gentleness and respect, which over the years I have seen so many people not do it with reason and respect. Well, you're just an idiot because you believe in whatever. That is not gentleness. That is not respect. <laughs> but you literally do it so that, and you live the life, and he goes back to that life you're supposed to be living. So that you have a clear conscience so that when they speak against you, they may be felt guilty because they're slandering you because you don't have any guilt in you. Not just spiritually, but just the way you're living. They can't talk bad about you. They can't say, well, he's, well, he's uh, out there uh, doing that and she's out there doing this and that. They're, you're living the life that's... So live for God. Um, so, and it goes on, you know, don't live for those human desires. Um, don't live like those who live, uh, like in verse 4, right? Living for God, right? Is all, uh, chapter 4, sorry, chapter 4 is all about living for God, you know? The pure, the, the pagans choose to do, you know, in, in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, carousing, dis, uh detest idolatry they think that is strange that you do not plunge with them the same food and dispensation and heap abuse on you you know because you're not acting like them and and we're going to see that throughout time that's always you know they they say well you're the one's not doing this you're the one not doing this you're not acting like you know and that's okay So then he goes on in chapter 5, and he gives some final exhortations. You know, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness in Christ's suffering, to one who will share in the glory revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving and overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording over those entrusted to you, but examples to those of the flock. And chief shepherd appears to you that he will be received the crown of glory and never fly away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older, that you will be clothed yourself with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Notice he doesn't say, like, don't ever have anxiety. He says, when it happens, cast it upon him. 
tell you what, it's a pet peeve of mine. If you have Jesus in your life, you don't have no worries, you don't have no anxieties, you don't have, and I've heard it all the time. That's a lie. The Bible says when you have anxieties, cast them upon him. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. Now, the enemy of the devil, the enemy of uh, Satan, the adversary, uh, is probably looking like a roaring lion. Now, we can use this like we use this in all kinds of ways, right? The enemy's out to get me, right? He's, that's why my computer doesn't work. Um, in his context that he's writing, he's actually talking about those who are wanting to kill you, persecute you, hunt you, you know, be hostile to you in persecution are everywhere. They're being led to do this. So, so, you know, resist him, resist the devil, don't give in to the, to the, the way of the, that, that temptations that are always around us. You know, those debaucheries. Now, we've got to look at the Roman world. The Roman world was actually worse in many ways than the United States is in debauchery, that we might, we might say. Um, but stay faithful, you know, and take faith that all around the world, they're going through the same sufferings. You know, all around the world, people are struggling with the same temptations you are. Maybe different, look different, right? You know, someone that doesn't have an iPhone doesn't ha- have struggle with pornography on their iPhone, but they're still struggling with lust. You know, it's all the same, you know, struggles all the same around the world. And then we also, with, we, re- we remember that as they, that around the world, people are suffering in real persecution and that we take, we, we join in with them. And, um, And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore and make you strong and firm and steadfast to him in power forever and ever. Amen. Um, I like this last little greetings, right? He talks to Silas, encouraging right there. So who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends her greetings. Uh, when he mentions Babylon there, he's, he's bringing back the Old Testament idea of what Babylon was, the, the center of the, 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 evil, the, the destroyer, the evil world, the, the ones who, who God turned against, but... Uh, you know, but it's probably not referring to actual Babylon. And this is metaphorical speak, referring to Rome. Rome is compared to Babylon on several occasions. Um, this was probably written in around AD 64 to 66. So it was right around the time Paul would have died under the hand of uh, Nero's persecution, and probably right before Peter dies. All right. Thank you, Peter.
Um, no later than 68, because that's around when he dies, and probably in Rome. This letter begins and ends by encouraging the audience to grow in their walk with Christ. Uh, which we call sanctification. It's a a book design that's that talks about walking the walk and uh, list virtues that encourage growth. You know, the good kind of growth, not the bad kind of growth. Um. He already said some of this stuff, so we're not going to read all of it, but um, I think I made a list. Yeah. Um, chapter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for a life of, goodly, of godliness through our knowledge of him who is called by his, his own glory for goodness. So if you think, I can't do this, I can't do this, of course you can't. He can, and he's given you everything you need to live it. Through these, he has given us the very great and precious promise so that through him you may participate in the divine nature, participate in the divine nature and escape corruption in the world caused by evil. So God's, we're able to participate in God's So, um, and and we have a list of uh, of things here in chapter in verse chapter starting in verse five. Uh, make every effort to add faith, goodness, knowledge, self control, perseverance, godliness, and brotherly kindness. And then ending with love. If you impress these qualities and increase these qualities in measures, you will be keeping you from living an unproductive life and you'll be living according to God. So, that's faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Um, as he talks about false teachers, he's going to talk that we can have confidence in the scriptures because people begin to doubt. Remember, their scriptures are the Old Testament. They begin to doubt what the um, what the Lord has promised, and, and they say, you know. So he says, you know, don't listen to those who are preaching that you know that's not really what it said, or that's you know you can't trust that. He says, be true. You can trust God's commandments, and um, 
And, and don't follow the, the, the false teachers. They'll be destructive, shameful, greedy, arrogant, blasphemous, boastful, and sinful. Which, interesting, he gives a list of these kind of what they are, which is opposite of what the godly characters are. They're going to turn their backs on God's commandments, and they're going to, and so you need to be aware. Paul and Peter both deal with these false teachers. You know, as I think about that, I think how important it is that we pay attention to who false teachers are because they're everywhere. last bit of this chapter is about uh, light in the last days, the light of the day of the Lord. Um, follows along with a lot of the same um, teachings, you know, be ready. You don't know what, you know, when the, when, when the day of the Lord will be. It's going to be like a thief. Of course, it makes sense that it would sound just like we heard Jesus teaching because Peter was taught by Jesus. So you're going to see some of that same language that we've talked about there. All right. All right, skip John 1, 2, and 3 in your Bibles. We'll come back to those. Go to Jude. All right, because we're going to go to Jude. All right. Who is Jude? Brother of James, yep, there's definitely a, a, a Jude or Judas, um, the, the son of James, anyways. Anyone else have any ideas? Church leader? There are three people in the scriptures other than the betrayer named Judas. Jude. Uh, Jude, the son of James. Judas called. Uh, um, Jude, uh, son of James, is one of the original thirteen disciples. Judas called Barsabas went with Paul and uh, Barnabas and Saul to Antioch after the Council of Jerusalem. In chapter fifteen, was the Council of Jerusalem. And Jude is listed among with James or Jacob, Joseph, Simon as brother of Jesus. So it's brother of James or son of a James. (laughs) Um, There is no wide... It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. 
So that's what we're getting. So to me, the brother of Jesus makes most sense. However, there is no wide uh, consensus on who Jude is. He may not even be one of the people listed up here. These are just the ones we know of in the Bible. It's a very popular name. It's like saying Tom wrote it. Sure. Uh, so we don't know exactly, but to me, the, most, the one who makes the most sense is the brother of Jesus. Um, claiming to be brother of James because he didn't accept Jesus till after Jesus died. Becomes convinced during the resurrection. Um, this book takes place in the area of Palestine around 8060 to 8080. So somewhere in that area. Very short book. Salutations. To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father, kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love to yours in abundance. Reason, so reason for writing. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about salvation we share, I felt I had to write to urge you to contend for the faith that once was entrusted to all the saints. For certain men whose condemnations was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're godless men who changed the grace of our God into license for immorality to deny Jesus our only sovereign Lord. So what are they doing? They're the people that say, well, I'm saved. Jesus saved me. I can do whatever I want. That's what the book's about. He wanted to write to you about the faith, but you got people in your faith that are doing, say, hey, I don't need to, I can just live, you know, <laughs> why bother, right? I'm saved. I'm good to go. Okay. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the people Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their position of authority but abandoned their home, and these, as they kept in darkness, abounded in every chains of judgment in a great day. In similar ways, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perseverance. They served as examples of those who suffering the punishment of eternal fire. In every way, those dreamers pollute their own bodies by rejecting authority and slander of celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputed with the devil about his body of Moses, did not declare being slanderous accident. Wait, where's that in the Bible? It's actually not. Um, that passage is, comes from the Assumption of Moses, which is a book 
that you can read. It's found uh, in the pseudopigrapha. It would have been a book that the people of Jude's writing to would have been familiar with, but it doesn't seem that it would have been held in the same regard as scriptures. He actually makes reference to a couple other things in here um, about Enoch, which is another book of the Bible that's not in the Bible. Uh, Enoch 1. Um, But anyways, so he, he says, warns against them, and they're called to preserve, and then there's a doxology to him who is able to keep you from falling to this present, uh, present you from his glory, pres- presence without fail, without great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forever. Amen. All right, I think we're going to watch a small video. This is the Bible Project on Jude, and then we'll come back and discuss that video, and then we're going to go home. And I'm going on vacation. The letter of Jude, or more accurately, Judah, according to the pronunciation of his name, both in Greek and in Hebrew. Judah was one of Jesus' four brothers who are named in the gospel accounts. None of the brothers followed Jesus as the Messiah before his death, but afterwards they saw him alive from the dead and then became his disciples. All these brothers of Jesus became leaders eventually in the first Jewish Christian communities, and Judah was known as a traveling teacher and missionary. And this gives us the background to understand the purpose of his letter. We don't know what specific church community he wrote to, but it was likely made up of mostly Messianic Jews. His writing style assumes a deep knowledge of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures, as well as other popular Jewish literature. Jude had become aware of a crisis facing this church, and so this helps us understand the letter's design. It begins with an opening charge, followed by a long warning and accusation against corrupt teachers who had influenced this church. And then Judah closes by completing the charge about what this church is supposed to do. Judah begins by charging this church to contend for the true Christian faith. He says his plan was to write a longer work that explored our shared salvation through the Messiah— But that project, he says, got delayed when he heard the urgent news about this church, and so he fired off this very thoughtful but very short letter. Judah doesn't begin with how they're supposed to contend for the faith. Rather, he first goes into why. It's because of the corrupt teachers who have infiltrated this church. And it's not their teaching that he targets, but their way of life. Their moral compromise is what tells you they have bad theology. First of all, they've distorted God's grace as a license to sin. They think that they're forgiven and they have God's spirit, so now they can do whatever they want, especially when it comes to money and sex. And so Judah says they betray Jesus by rejecting his authority and his teachings. And Judah wants this church to know that the appearance of these teachers is no surprise. He transitions into a longer warning to stay away from them. He first offers two sets of three Old Testament examples. The first trio is about rebellious people who in the past received divine justice. So the Israelites who rebelled against God in the wilderness, they got what they wanted and they died out in the middle of nowhere. 
Then he brings up a story about angels who are imprisoned for rebellion until they face God's justice. He's referring to the interpretation of the story in Genesis 6, offered in the popular Jewish work called First Enoch, where the sons of God are interpreted to refer to angels who rebelled against God, then had sex with women and were judged accordingly. Judah links this story to his third example about the ruin of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis, where violent men tried to have sex with angels. Both these stories are about rebellion against God's order that led to sexual immorality, and that's precisely what the corrupt teachers are guilty of. After this, Judah brings up a bonus example from a popular Jewish text called the Testament of Moses. Like Enoch, it was not part of the Old Testament scriptures, and it was a creative retelling of Moses' final days and words based on Deuteronomy. In the section that Judah quotes from, Moses has died, and there's a good angel, Michael, who is refuting the devil's accusations against Moses, but he decides to leave final judgment for God alone. Now, these stories might seem kind of odd to you, but for Jewish people who were raised on this literature, Judah's warnings make good sense. The behavior of these corrupt teachers has ancient roots, rebellion against God's authority, sexual immorality, rejecting God's messengers. And this connects to the second trio of examples. They're all about rebels who went on to corrupt other people. So Cain, he murdered his brother, but then he went on to build a city where violence reigned. Balaam, the sorcerer, he couldn't curse Israel, and so he lured them into idolatry and sexual corruption. And then Korah, the Levite, he led a rebellion against Moses that ended in disaster for others. Judah concludes the second trio with a barrage of Old Testament images to describe the teachers. They're like the selfish shepherds of Ezekiel, or like the clouds with no rain from Proverbs, or like the chaotic waves from Isaiah. Their self-absorption betrays their claim to follow Jesus. They create chaos wherever they go. Judah concludes his warning by quoting from two other warnings, one ancient and one recent. The first comes, again, from the popular book of First Enoch, which claimed to contain the visions of the ancient figure Enoch from the book of Genesis. Now, what's fascinating is Judah quotes from the opening chapter of Enoch, which is itself quoting about half a dozen Old Testament texts about the final day of the Lord's justice on human evil. Judah then matches Enoch's ancient warning with a more recent one from the Apostles. Peter, John, Paul, they all predicted that corrupt teachers would arise and distort the good news about Jesus. And they themselves were echoing Jesus' early warning about the same thing. And so this church should need no more convincing. These teachers have to be dealt with. So Judah then moves into his closing charge. He picks up his opening line about contending for the faith, and he unpacks how to do so with a cool set of metaphors. He describes the community of Jesus as God's new temple. And so they are to build their lives on the foundation of the most holy faith, which refers to the core message of good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for our sins. On that foundation, the church is to build itself through a dedication to prayer, by devoting itself to the love of God through obedience. And the integrity of this building will be maintained by staying alert for the return of Jesus to bring his justice and his mercy. And in doing this, they will help each other stay faithful to Jesus. Judah then concludes by praising the God who will protect his people and keep them from falling too far from his grace. The short letter of Judah is powerful and puzzling for many modern readers who ask why he quotes from texts that aren't today considered part of the Hebrew Bible, like First Enoch or the Testament of Moses. It's important to remember that Jewish culture in this time was immersed in religious texts. 
Jesus, his family, all the early Jewish Christians grew up reading the Hebrew Bible along with many later books that were based on and inspired by the scriptures. And we know there were ancient debates about whether or not some of these later books should be viewed as scripture, but regardless, they're still important. A book doesn't have to be in the Bible to speak an important message to God's people. And so we have many Jewish texts from this period. They're known today as the collections of the Apocrypha, also called the Deuterocanon, along with the Pseudepigrapha. These were all preserved and read in Jewish and Christian communities. They were treated with great respect. It doesn't mean they were originally designed as part of the Hebrew Bible, but they are part of the biblical tradition. And so Judah, knowing his readers that they would value words from First Enoch, he used them to communicate his message, which is this. God's grace through Jesus demands a whole life response, not just intellectual assent. Notice that Judah doesn't criticize or focus on the teacher's theology, but their immoral way of life, which denies Jesus. And so Judah is here applying what Jesus first told his disciples. If you really love me, then you will obey my teachings. For Christians, how you live is the most reliable indicator of what you actually believe. And that's what the letter of Jude is all about. Ah, thank you. All these posters, you can download at BibleProject.com. You can download all the posters. So they all look like those at the end of the movies, they all showed like all the drawings. You can download all of those. Um, if you're interested. Um, so let me let me ask you this uh, as as we're, we're we're thinking about this book. I know um, we're gonna go here in a minute, but let me ask you this: What do you guys think about the the idea that other books that are not in our scriptures are quoted or referenced? Let's say in general, and then we'll go to specifically. Well, these these ones that are quoted here in this book are are similar, but they're not really that close. I don't know if you guys have ever read them. Pseudopigrapha. Pigrapha. It means false name. It's like uh, it's like if I were to write a book and say it was written by Moses. Not necessarily lying, it's in that time period it was perfectly acceptable to claim that authority in yourself. Um, instead of like, they didn't have like, go, they didn't do like ghost writers, they did, well we see the, you know, but I see the same things happening like in our fiction writings, you know, I'm, I'm well, the other day I was, uh, looking at a book by Michael Crichton. But Michael Crichton has been dead for a while. And then you read in small print, 
the name of the guy who's actually writing the book using Michael Crichton's world that he created in a dramatist uh, terminal man. Anyways, uh, but we see this kind of stuff in, in lots of, you know, Tolkien's works or uh, J.R.R. Tolkien or, or uh, uh, Clive Cluster. I don't know if you guys read any of his stuff or um, what was that guy's name? Um, the guy does the Rainbow Six. Um, Tom Clancy, thank you. A lot of his stuff aren't actually written by him. Um, it's people writing in that world and using his characters, and so he gets first credit. And the pseudo, think of the pseudopigrapha as that. They're claiming, they're people writing, claiming that world, that authority, that time period, that... Um, and, and we've... Um, We've ta taken them out, and, and we've, there's a long, see, when we say what's in the scriptures, there's actually, it's not like someone went through and they're just, ah, this one was good, this one's bad, this one's good, this one's bad. It's a long process of how we got to where we're at today with this. Um, but let's talk about these ones specifically. How do you guys feel about these two books being in there? But first Enoch is where we get the idea, really, um, where Genesis chapter 6 is talking about angels and women. That's actually a, comes a lot largely from first Enoch. First Enoch, if you want, uh, you can listen to it on YouTube. Um, it's like six hours long if you listen to it straight on YouTube. Um, I've got a copy of it in my office, actually. Um, <laughs> it's one of those things that in the Second Temple period would have been a very popular book. And it's got things like the Watchers in it. And um, um, what was that book, that movie? You guys remember that movie, Noah? That wasn't very good. Um, uh, who was in that movie? Um, Russell Crowe, thank you. Russell Crowe was, was uh, Noah. Um, I didn't really care for the movie, but a lot of the, the ideas that were, were actually taken from the book of First Enoch. And First Enoch, a lot of people have argued and are still arguing today, should it be in the scriptures? Now, the reason it's not is because the earliest, pe earliest people did not seem to include it. It was not in any of the um, major list that we have and other reasons. You know, it seems to be, it claims to be written by Enoch, which, you know, God walked with Enoch and he was taken. Claims to be written by him, but it has definite Persian, which means time of Daniel kind of readings inside of it. Uh, so that's why it's part of the pseudopigrapha, written in a different time period, claiming the authority of um, Yeah.
Jude wrote this knowing that the people of his time had already read these books. It's like me referencing Harry Potter to uh, a millennial. They've all read it. Doesn't mean it's scripture, but they've all read it. I'm referencing ideas. I can reference all ideas out of Harry Potter. Now, if I reference Tolkien to a millennial, they may not have read The Lord of the Rings. They probably saw the movie. That's a lousy movie. I'm just going to go there. (laughs) It's good as long as you don't read the book. Um, It's one of those. Um, It's, uh, you know, so so they've, they've, they've said that, and Jude referenced these things. By the time of Jesus' birth, that idea that you're talking about the angels and man got together, that was common theology by the time of Jesus. That was what they believed. We're the ones that have said that's not how it should be read. We're the ones that said that. Because whether we're trying to get back to what they were actually trying to say in an original Hebrew or because we just don't like the idea of angels or uh, uh, heavenly hosts coming down in that way. We're the ones saying that. If you want to read more on that theology in reference to Enoch, I recommend a man named Michael Heisner. Uh, he's got a book called The Unseen Realm. It's a little bit technical, but it's a great read on that, where all those theology, that theology and where, how that affects the rest of the Bible. Uh, he has follow-up books after that, Demons and Angels and uh, I think The Supernatural, which are all referencing, like hashing out the ideas of the Unseen Realm. But I recommend reading Unseen Realm first. That's like everything else is just kind of off of that one. And it doesn't seem they did either. Right. That's why it's not in. They're saying this is a good book, but it's not in any of the list. Like the Assumption of Mo- Testament of Moses is not listed in any of the books. Like the list is like this is the writings, the prophet, the law, the prophets, and the writings. It's not listed in any of those. Well, yeah, and, you know, this, this, it, the Testament of Moses is a book that takes place, if you read the book, uh, it takes place right at the end of, of Deuteronomy. 
And so it's talking about how the devil and, and, and Moses fight over, I mean, the devil and Michael fight over the devil, Moses' body, uh, because he's interceding on the behalf of the uh, Israelites, so he goes to hell. He's a servant of God, so he goes to heaven. Um, and so they fight over him. Here's how I look at this. Uh, I know it's time to go, so I'm going to go ahead and say what I, he says. Um, he's referencing, and he's referencing the way Jude uses it. He's not using it like the, this event has to have happened. He's using it as an example. These dreamers pollute their own bodies and reject authority and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, with disputing with the devil, a body of Moses, did not dare bring slanderous accusation against him. He's using an example. Even the heavenly hosts don't slander other celestial beings, other heavenly hosts. So he's saying, so it's, it, you know, whether it's true or not, and that's fact or not, he's not, he's not using it in that manner. He's saying, this is from our book, this is from this book. Read the book. It doesn't happen. So it's like, and so in my mind, when I read it, it's like I could reference like, remember that part in Harry Potter where he even he didn't dare, you know, make fun of Voldemort, you know, or you know, of course he makes fun of Voldemort all the time. But even if he didn't, you know, it'd be like Harry Potter didn't make fun of Voldemort, you know, uh, or well, actually it was uh, Dumbledore that even Dumbledore didn't make fun of Voldemort. Because he knew better. Harry didn't know better. Uh, you know, even Dumbledore didn't make fun of it. So I've used it in that way in referencing that, hey, it's, this is just being smart. This is, you know, being, you know, like their moral, you know, rep campus is not there. Because, I'm, you know, but I've read the, the Testament of Moses. Now, I don't think, yeah, and I, I you know, there's, there's I've, I've read some information about it. I'm not an expert on it by any means. But I would say that it shouldn't be part of our scriptures by what I've read. But it is a good example from the readings of the time that they would be using. This is an example of even they don't act like these people. Yes. It is. It's kind of a, some of they're using this. Even they don't. Even you know, in this in this book, they don't act like that. There's no way you should. They we you know that we should put up with that from these people, these false teachers. So, um, but anyway, something to think about. And you will hear First Enoch come up time and time again. People wanting to get it in our scriptures. So, uh, even today, yeah, actually, I watched the TikTok video about it just this morning. Uh, but, um, so yeah, so pay attention to that. 
Um, if you are grounded in the scriptures, read the book of Enoch. If you haven't finished your scriptures and aren't grounded on them, stay away because you're not ready for it yet. Uh, but if you're ready, go ahead and read the book of First Enoch, then you can discuss it. Um, it's an interesting read. Uh, uh, anyways, it is time to go. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll be out of here. Yahweh Adonai, Lord God, we praise you today, Lord. We thank you for just this wonderful blessing. We thank you for just bringing us here together. And lifting us up, and just uh, we pray that uh, you just uh, speak to our hearts and 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 put us uh, on your righteous path, that we may live the life in godly character, as you have called us to do. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.